So currently I'm reading one of those dystopian novels, right? And, and, you know, there's lots of dystopias that novelists have thought up, but this particular one is about a world in which the sea levels have risen dramatically. It's called, it's called The Drowned World by J.G. Ballard. And as the title suggests, the sea levels have risen quite a lot. Things are pretty bad in this world. The atmosphere got degraded, meaning that radiation from the sun increased the temperature, ice caps melted, and the ocean levels drowned the world. Um, and the cities at high altitude are still dry, but they're too exposed to the radiation from the sun, so they can't live there either. So the story is set sometime after these changes took place, and the world population is down to about five million humans who live at the North and the South Poles. But this is a world that could happen, right? Dystopian fiction basically gets its substance from catastrophes that didn't get prevented or, or at least mitigated by human or government action. And as dystopias go, we could be looking down the barrel of this one, right? Sea levels are likely to rise at some point in the relatively near future, and we, as humans, are going to have to find some way to, to cope with that. And there's likely to be a payoff if we can find a way to grapple with the problem rather than just keep ignoring it as we're currently doing. And this is the problem that Lisa Ellis of the University of Otago is currently working on. And we've got Lisa Ellis in the studio today. Oh, thanks, Dan. It's great to be here. You're, You're listening, listening to Dialogues. So I'm Dan, and here with me today uh, is Holly. Hi. And also Richard. Hi. So Lisa, why don't you tell us a bit more about your, your research on this topic right now? Thanks, I'd be glad to. I heard Ballard say, and most of us already know, that we're faced with a locked-in, accelerating problem of sea level rise. We're faced with increasing inundation events, more frequent high tides than we're used to, increasing coastal erosion that's going to increase at a faster rate over time. Everybody's aware that um, we're going to lose um, properties that are low-lying. What people don't seem to understand, and what Ballard didn't refer to as I heard you talk about him, is that the crisis we're facing is as much moral and political as it is physical. Well, sounds like a fantastic project. Um, we actually went down to the pier and got the word on the street, or the quayside, uh, about this problem. Let's see what people thought. How do you feel about climate change and, and sea level rise? Uh, does that scare you? you yes, any... it does concern us. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm. Yeah, it is a concern. Yeah, and, and what do you think? I mean, what do you think we should be doing about if if the sea levels are going to come up? What should we do about it? What what could the government do? Um, I think they should consider where they are allowing building on uh, next to the. Uh, next to the ocean um, and I think we should attempt to um, to stop it by lowering CO2. You mentioned the people who've built property or own land near the water. Mm. Often that's the wealthiest people or wealthiest yeah. businesses. Is it really fair to ask the rest of society to kind of subsidise assistance? Well, that, that's, that's, a, that's a very good question, I suppose. But I, I think it impacts on everyone, doesn't it? It's not, yeah, OK, they, they might own a, the beachside property but it, it's a, it'll be a massive impact on everyone, on infra, infrastructure, you know, on, on flooding of roads, on, 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 on I assume, flooding of um, sewerage systems. Um, I, think, I think it's more, yeah, OK, people, people's uh, beachside houses are going to be flooded, but I think it's the, uh, it's, it's the rest of the, um, the infrastructure that's going to be damaged. 
yeah, anything, anything to add? Or? We shouldn't really look at it as just as our own backyard. We should be looking at it from a more global perspective and looking at sort of some of those uh, lower, lower lying um, countries that uh, will be affected. We should all be contributing so that um, some of the, the, the less wealthy countries can actually, that their, their burden is lessened. And we shouldn't also ship out all of our stuff to other countries to deal with, you know, like our recycling and everything else. We should be looking at, result, at ways we can do that in-house. So. Climate change and sea level rise, how, how do you feel about that? Um, <laughs> it's definitely getting worse. Yeah, it's not good. Got to change something or... Supposing yes. it's too late to stop the sea levels from coming up, what, what might we, what do you think we might do about oh, it? Or, really? or ask our government? Suppose that happens, how would we, oh, what should did. we do? Oh, well, then I just think we're kind of screwed, honestly. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but yeah. Um, I have no idea. I don't really know either, honestly. I don't know much about it. Yeah, I think they need to educate people more. And if you were in government, what would you, would you have any ideas about how we might address the problem? Oh, I think the government should do a lot more to address so many problems. Like, we're from Canada, so we're not even from here. I don't know what the government's doing here, but yeah, I just know in Canada they're not doing enough for the environment either, for pollution or for, yeah, here for rising sea levels and stuff, yeah. Yeah, they're definitely not. So, yeah, they need to start doing something quick because things are going downhill fast. Yeah. Or rising fast. Or rising fast, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's sad. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I'm more in line with the second two people that we that Dan talked to than the first two. I, I feel like I don't really know that much about what's going on. So, I mean, I know that um, lower-lying countries are going to face problems with climate change, but I don't really know the domestic problems. I think you, your work is somewhat on domestic problems too. So, so I don't really know what the problems are, for instance, with people building properties on uh, coastal uh, in coastal regions, why that would be a problem. So can you, can you explain to me a bit more about what the problem is? Sure, I'd be glad to. It is tempting to build your property on the coast. As human beings, we love to live near water. And I think um, often we don't actually um, manage uh, to respect people's actual values, for example, wishing to live by the water. The problem is that we have to um, bring uh, uh, the empirical reality together with those values that we want to express. And we have to recognize that when we make decisions like that, they involve everybody else that we might uh, potentially and actually interact with the whole country. Um, so if we stopped making new emissions tomorrow, if we went to carbon and methane and all the other greenhouse gases zero tomorrow through some miracle, we would still see um, probably at least a meter of sea level rise. Of course, that varies locally, but as a rule of thumb, um, about a meter uh, by the turn of the century is a, is a good uh, number to aim for. And more important than the actual locked-in sea level rise is to think about what that means for people's daily experience on their bodies and in their homes. So even a, a slight level in sea level rise means that those hundred-year floods that you are perfectly happy to accept as possible and that will um, not make your insurance company antsy about insuring your home 
If those 100-year floods suddenly become 10-year floods, if an unusually high spring tide becomes an every tide, everyday tide, um, your insurability is going to end, and your experience of daily life is going to be very different. So we need to take those locked-in changes really seriously. So the guy in the first um, couple mentioned, so he seemed to have a strong idea about the, what we should do, right? He said we should just stop people building near the coastlines. What did you think about that suggestion? In a way, I really related to him. We want to um, behave rationally from a collective perspective. And everybody recognizes the manifest irrationality of adding units of value to a place where they will not persist. From a collective perspective, it's crazy that we're um, taking our scarce resources and piling them into a place from which we'll have to retreat or spend a lot of money on expensive defense. And yet, we don't have any rules governing this activity. And from an individual perspective, you can see why people like to live by the coast and why they might well say, of my unit of investment value, I'm willing to take the risk and I want to put it next to the coast. The problem is that we, as a, a um, series, as a group of localities, have not um, written rules that will allow us to do this fairly. So why shouldn't people absorb the cost of the risk? I mean, the first couple, they were saying things along the lines of, oh, we are in this together, and to some degree, you know, that that's true, I think. But at the end of the day, if I, you know, if I buy a pet snake and it bites me, you know, that's on me. If I buy, <laughs> if I buy a house on top of a cliff because I like cliffs and the cliff crumbles... Why, why, why should that be different, you know? Do individuals have to share some of the responsibility in these cases, Lisa? I think those are great examples. And the answer is it's a matter for democratic decision for the group of people to decide exactly how they divide up those uh, responsibilities. So there's a range of possible options from fully solidaristic, where risky behavior is always covered by some uh, outside entity, usually the state. And when we say the state, of course, we mean everyone. And then at the other end of that, there's um, a, a sort of perfectly individual where um, you uh, are responsible for all of the risk that you undertake. And most countries end up in the middle. Mm. So the recent settlement um, between the British Insurers Council and the government um, over in the UK found a middle ground between it's not perfect solidarity, um, because after all, that encourages moral hazard. If I know that my risky behavior is going to be compensated by some anonymous collective that mm. I I don't have to apologize to. I'm very likely to um, behave in a more risky way than I would otherwise. Um, but they also didn't go for uh, the full individualization of risk. And they didn't do that because they recognize that the risks are going to fall disproportionately on people who are least able to shoulder them. Yeah. And I think that would um, include somebody silly enough to let themselves be bitten by a snake. Mm. That kind of person might suffer from structural disadvantage, and we need to do a little solidaristic protection of them. <laughs> so what kind of solutions are you attracted to, and what, what, what kind of things would they in imply? Well, I think the first problem that um, countries need to think about is the state of lawlessness that we are all um, sharing. So when I say it's an ongoing, accelerating moral disaster, what I mean is we recognize the collective irrationality of adding um, investment that is risky and will, in the end, um, maximize social loss. Um, but we don't have any rules to prevent that. 
And on the other hand, um, we are um, faced with having to make decisions about existing low-lying developments, um, again, in, a, in an absence of general rules. So those low-lying developments that are threatened by sea level rise, if they have sufficient social power, are able to extract resources from the government. And remember, the government is all of us. And if they don't have sufficient social power, they tend to be told from government authorities that they ought to begin to accept the possibility of managed retreat. One thing I really worry about is the status quo, this lawlessness that we didn't anticipate because nobody understood uh, how sea level rise would affect um, our dwelling near the coast. Um, one of the things that um, we need to do is recognize that the current status quo really is exhibiting the following principle. And the principle is the risk get hardening and the poor get moved. We don't want to be, um, as a society, I don't think the kind of place that tells people your communities are only as valuable as their property value. So I have a lot of sympathy with this thought that there's a kind of lawlessness and one way to fix that or resolve that is to change the law, have the government change policy. Um, this might just be a bit of a retributive impulse on my part, but I'm, I guess I wonder, doesn't it let corporations and companies off the hook, at least in the case where you know, they know full well about the risks of sea level rise, um, erosion to land and so on, when they build, they profit massively from doing that, and then they're not really held accountable in any way. I mean, I this might, yeah, I feel like I'm constantly battling against big corporations doing wrong, and I'm the little guy trying to get justice, and maybe I just have this strong impulse that we should also want to sanction them or get them to stop doing that or make them pay when we need to, um, you know, redress people who have been harmed uh, through li living in these places. No, absolutely. And you don't have to just look at sea level rise to see circumstances in which, from the perspectives of corporation, the way they do business is to externalize their risks and internalize their profits. Right. And it's shameful when um, states uh, uh, aid them in that unjust operation. It's also um, anti-capitalist to behave that way. <laughs> so there are lots of reasons not to like it. I think one thing that is not being discussed enough in the policy literature and really ought to be discussed is even in a solidaristic policy, one where you say people shouldn't be asked to solder all the risks of happening to inhabit property in a low-lying area, for example. Um, there's no reason that the collective redress of this difficulty shouldn't come from a targeted rather than a general tax. Mm -hmm. There's no reason that the general ratepayer is any more responsible than, say, for, uh, somebody um, who's paying a carbon tax. A carbon tax would be a really just and effective way um, to um, uh, uh, implement a polluter pays principle. It wouldn't be as historically retributive as you'd like. The problem with the historical ret retribution, and I sympathize very much with the desire um, to make people responsible for their actions so that we can all live like equals. The problem is that in a circumstance where the rules were not yet laid down to prevent them from making these risky investments, it's hard to see how we can rightly hold them one person accountable and another person not accountable when neither one was breaking any public rules. That's why this is such an urgent task for countries. We need to end the state of lawlessness. The thought then might be that the limits of what companies and corporations can be expected to do is just obey the law. So if the loopholes are there, they're kind of off the hook and they haven't done anything wrong. And I suppose one th maybe that's just a different conversation, right? Mm -hmm. But one thing to think is that there are moral requirements that 
um, companies and corporations face mm. that aren't just the limits of the law. Mm. And then so we can make sense of the thought that they really do something wrong when they take these risks and impose those risks onto um, consumers and people that buy property. Mm. And we, we can want to hold them accountable even if they didn't, strictly speaking, break the law at the time. Do you have any sympathy with that? I have sympathy with the um, underlying understanding, but as somebody who is always having recourse to political philosophy, I have a different set of solutions than moral exhortation. Mm, Um, So there's a a sort of two-pronged reason for that. There's um, the moral arguments I find persuasive. Um, The... um, effect of the moral arguments, I think, is is unlikely to affect any of the change we want to get. And second, um, if morality tells us what we need to do is to um, inhabit the planet with other people in such a way that um, uh, we're not doing injustice to each other, um, then the problem of arranging our relationships both with corporations and with other people um, is one that has to be solved collectively, one that has to be solved um, uh, uh, with 100% of people participating rather than with me picking out an individual and saying, um, because you exhibit a conscience, I expect you to pay a disproportionate cost of your behavior compared to this company that exhibits no conscience on the other side. I think um, the biologist and pseudo-philosopher, or actual philosopher, Garrett Hardin said it best, (laughs) right? Conscience is self-eliminating. Conscience is self-eliminating. We don't want to be in the position where we're expecting only the good guys to unilaterally take on disproportionate burdens. Yeah, good. I agree with that. You've been listening to Dialogues. I'm Holly Lawford-Smith from the University of Melbourne. And I'm Dan Halliday, also from the University of Melbourne. And I'm Richard Rowland from the Australian Catholic University. I'm Lisa Ellis from the University of Otago, and I've been talking about work that I've done collaboratively with Britta Clark and Lauren Holloway. Dialogues is funded by the University of Melbourne.